Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 86. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-hosts today, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. And today we have with us special guest, Eric Klein. Dr. Klein is here to speak with us on a variety of topics on biblical archaeology and to talk a little about his new book that has recently come out, Three Stones Make a Wall, A History of Archaeology. We not only talk about some of the more popular highlights in biblical archaeology, but we also talk about how professional archaeologists should reach out and communicate with the public. Get ready to think critically. Are you getting it? Maybe? Digging in a trench. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I'm joined today with my two co-hosts, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. How's it going, guys? It's going great. We're a third of the way through the semester and just having the time of my life, Sarah. Ugh, yes, midterms are coming up. It's terrifying. Yeah. Just, uh, just another day in paradise. <laughs> Today we have special guest uh, Eric Klein with us today, and he is out of the University of Washington in D.C., is that correct? George Washington University. George Washington University out of D.C., that's right. GWU. Um, GWU, yes. GWU, yeah, we're practically neighbors, so that's kind of exciting. <laughs> yes, I was down actually in your neck of the woods yesterday. Oh, well, there you go. It's only, it's like a day trip on the metro anymore. <laughs> um, so... Eric is here to talk to us about a variety of topics. Uh, a lot of them are centered around biblical archaeology that we're going to be talking about today. And I think that's really exciting because I know that's a topic that Ken and I have touched on in the past, but we haven't really delved into it very much. Right. And Eric, you've written a, a whole book, well, a couple books now on the, the subject, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I've touched on it uh, a number of times. There's one book that's probably most appropriate, the From Eden to Exile, Unraveling Mysteries of the Bible. And I'll tell you right now, I do not unravel six of the seven of them. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, one, one out of seven is not that bad. Uh, the, the, where are the Ten Lost Tribes? I think I figured that one out. The other ones will remain mysteries. But I had fun going through all the evidence and what we think and what we don't think. It's fair enough. In baseball, if you you get a hit one one time out of seven, you can still be a millionaire. So it's that's one oh, yeah. out of seven is all right. And and that's um, and that's how, and that's how it works in archaeology as well. I think so. <laughs> and I've that's it's a wonderful book. I I, I um, highly recommend it. They're they're really it, it's the the writing is wonderful. It's very conversational, and um and I think it's it does a really nice job of laying out what we know and admitting what we don't know. Which is what this show is uh, at least in absolutely. Part about. So yeah. absolutely, oh yeah, yeah. We try to be pretty frank about it. So what's your what, what's your newest book, Eric? We're going to plug that one as well. Uh, the newest book is Three Stones Make a Wall: The Story of Archaeology, and this actually came out of the fifteen or sixteen years I've been teaching my intro class, and so these are basically my lectures cobbled together for the general public. 
Yeah, that's fun. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's sort of a history of archaeology. Um, I mean, I, I just I have not had time to read it. I perused it because I bought it last week. Um, I've been meaning to, but it looks like it's basically a history of archaeology, sort of a little regional, a little chronological, a little theoretical, a little methodological. A little bit of everything, yeah. It's more, I would I would describe it uh, as a greatest hits of archaeology. Okay, yeah, I could see that. So the, chap- the chapters are, you know, all the famous finds uh, from Machu Picchu to the Terracotta Warriors to uh, some of the Paleolithic stuff. Um, but interspersed, I've got these little interludes where I answer questions that I'm asked most frequently when I'm at, you know, cocktail parties and dinners and such. How do you know where to dig and mm-hmm. how do you dig and how on earth do you know how old stuff is? Things like that. So those I popped in and I think those are proven to be some of the most popular parts of the book because they're actually answering questions that people have. Yeah. So a solid kind of for the general public. Here's what archaeology is. Here are some of its cool things. Here are some of its challenges, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up reading uh, C.W. Saram's God's Graves and Scholars. But that, even the second edition, came out in 1967. So it's like 50 years out of date. Yeah, no. I'm hoping mine is the the I don't know what you would call it the sequel. <laughs> yeah, I mean there 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 that used to be a lot more common, and we've talked about this a little. Um, how a, any number, and I'm I'm blanking right now on on the one I'm thinking of, but uh, that was not so unusual to have archaeologists writing for a larger public. And while we do to some degree today, it's a very different kind of writing usually, which then usually gets filtered through science writers and and so forth. Well. Um, uh- and in fact, Sir Ram himself was a journalist. He wasn't an archaeologist. Right. Exactly. So yeah. now you've also you've also written one, and I remember the numerical portion. Okay. And you could probably fill in. I think I remember what the rest is, but I don't want to mangle it. It's eleven seventy seven. And what is the rest of the title of that book? Right. It's eleven seventy seven BC. The year civilization collapsed. Yes, I, I thought that's what it was, and yeah. that's basically about the end of the Bronze Age, right? Yeah, it's about the end of the Bronze Age, just after 1200 BC, hence the title 1177. But that's the year that a group called the Sea Peoples came through and attacked Egypt. And uh, Ramses III, Pharaoh of Egypt, wrote about that. Right. And so for more than a century, people have blamed those Sea Peoples for ending the Everything. Bronze Age. Yeah. yeah. That brought down Minoans, Mycenaeans, Hittites, Canaanites, Cypriots, basically the known civilized world of the Mediterranean. And so what I go through is investigating not just why it fell, because I don't think it's just the sea peoples, but I also wanted to explore what fell. So I actually walk people through about 300 years of the late Bronze Age, assuming that most people are not familiar with anybody except for King Tut and maybe Hatshepsut. Yeah. So and that's a that's a fascinating period because you know you've argued that it's you can you could very much understand later globalized periods later kind of world system periods because yeah. that whole world in no small part I, I, again now I'm not a old worldist but in no small part due to the literally the chemical nature of bronze uh, requires far flung trade networks. Yeah, absolutely. To make bronze, you need tin and you need copper. Copper is no problem. That's coming from Cyprus. But the tin seems to be coming all the way from Afghanistan, which is, by the way, where the lapis lazuli was coming right. from. Too. Yeah, the be- beautiful blue stone and all of that. And so this is this world with like pieces here and pieces there. And if something goes wrong here, it, of course, will not reverberate through the rest of the system and cause 
all sorts of problems and banking collapses and so forth. Um, but uh, so we, we were talking before the show and, and there's something you said that made me go, wait, what? Uh, yeah, I literally did that. Um, when we were talking about the bronze age and one of the more famous events in the bronze age and you tied it into, into ideas about the Exodus and that was Santorini. And I'm not going to say anything further. I will let you explain so I don't color it. But again, I just want to say, wait, what? To that. So what what ties the word Santorini, which is a place, but it's also an event, and and the idea of the Exodus? What 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 is that connection? Right. Okay. So in order to tie them all together, let me take a step back for a second. Sure. Exactly. That in the world of that's collapsing in 1177 BC, which um, is globalized for their time. I mean, the way you put it is, is quite um, a good way to say it, that everybody is dependent on everybody else. And when one goes down, the others fall like dominoes too. Um, into the, in that time period, there are a number of other things that, that are fairly well known. For example, the Trojan War, if it took place, which I do think it did, is somewhere between 1250 and about 1177 BC. So it's right in this collapse. That's the context of the Trojan War. Same thing for the Exodus. If the Exodus took place, and most biblical scholars will, will tell you that it's probably not in about 1450 BC, which is what, if you add up the numbers in the Bible, it should be but it's more likely about 1250 BC, which is when the archaeology say that everything is being you know, blown to smithereens in Canaan and is ripe for the Israelites to come on in and take over. And if that's at about 1250 BC or somewhere around that time, then again, that's right in the context of this general collapse at the end of the late Bronze Age, in which everything changes at the end. We go from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, and from huge empires to little city-states, and so on and so forth. So in the 1177 BC book, I mentioned the Trojan War kind of in passing, and I mentioned the Exodus in passing. Now, uh, I also in passing mentioned the eruption of Santorini, and I say that has nothing to do with the collapse for one simple reason, and that is that when the volcanic island of Santorini, which is also known as Thera, located about 70 miles north of Crete in the Aegean, when it blew up, we now know that that took place, according to radiocarbon dating, about 1628 BC. That's a very that's a very specific for and about. Uh, what what is that tied into geological records of kind of like ashfall or something like core samples? It's tied into a whole bunch of things, and the archaeologists, late Bronze Age archaeologists like myself, have been debating this since about 1988, when the first radiocarbon date started suggesting that maybe our traditional date, which was at about 1450 BC. Which is also the transition at the Palace of Knossos, right? Right, that's well, give or take, somewhere in there is where the Mycenaeans right. from mainland take over. Um, so it looked like we were about 200 years off. Yeah. And this set off a big debate called uh, the high chronology debate, basically. Right. So and originally it was based on radiocarbon dates and ice cores and various other things. 
the ice core argument has now kind of dropped out, but radiocarbon is still there, especially since they found an olive branch in the ash <laughs> from the corruption and managed. Oh, very nice. So and that's the work of, of, of Sturt Manning, right? Yes, that's Stuart Manning, and actually 1628 is, as you say, very precise. It's more like that it happened between 1645 and 1600, but yeah. everything is pointing to about 1628. So what that means, and uh, this may be why you went, whoa, is the eruption of Santorini took place about four centuries yeah. before the collapse, and even... If you don't buy the radiocarbon dating and you go with the traditional dating of the eruption of Santorini, even that's at 1450 BC, yeah. so that's still two and a half years. centuries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've been teaching my kids for years. Again, I'm not, a, I'm not neither a classicist nor a Bronze Ageist, but you know, around 1650 or a little later, somewhere in there. So yeah, right, right. So where it gets interesting, though, is first of all, that's usually a Right. It gets very interesting in a number of different ways. First of all, many people uh, who haven't studied the situation in detail have been told and want to believe that the eruption of Santorini is connected to the Exodus. How? Well, this is, this yeah. is where I'm baffled. <laughs> right. So leaving aside the date just for a sure, moment. Sure, sure. If you have an eruption on an island in the middle of the Aegean, its effects will probably be felt and seen and heard in Egypt, for example. Yeah, tsunami is a possibility. Right, and we know there was a tsunami. We know it hit Crete, for example. Um, mm -hmm. There's some blocks from the palace of Amnusos that are washed out onto the beach. There's um, pumice and tephra that's washed up on the shores of Egypt. Um, and there's even um, a text from Egypt that may describe the eruption. It's called the Tempest Steely, but that's debated. So the argument by those people is that if Santorini erupted, that it could have caused, for instance, the parting of the Red Sea. Because, you know, when you have a tidal wave, the tsunami sea, it right. pulls back, right? Yeah pulls back first, okay. um, and then secondly, it could have caused all the ten plagues. So you get quite uh, a few people trying to link the eruption of Santorini to the Exodus um, and, and the miracles and the plagues and all that. The problem is, as I said, that um, the Exodus, according to archaeology, if it takes place, is probably about 1250 B.C., which means, again, uh, Santorini blows up at least 200 years earlier, if not 400, and that's a very long time for Moses to stand there with his arms up in the air. <laughs> he works out. It works out. Now, I you, get, well. now, to be fair, you can make it work one way, and that is that if you take the biblical chronology, which says that the Exodus took place 480 years before Solomon built the temple, which is at about 970, you add 480 years to that, you get about 1450 B.C. That was the original date for Santorini blowing up. Right, right. So right. you have to argue two things. One, that you're not going to go with the radiocarbon dating for Santorini. And two, you're going to go with the biblical chronology rather than the archaeological um, argument. When was when was that idea the the like the the mainstream archaeological putting Santorini at 1450? When would that have been pop? Like when would that have been introduced in 
and you said around starting 1988, it begins to get questioned. Like, when are we talking? We often run into people wanting to preserve when they're talking alt archaeology, textbook stuff from a long time ago. When would this have been a popular idea? Well, that's that's exactly the point. It was in all the textbooks that people were reading up until about 1987 or 88. Okay. Okay. Uh, it was the standard. That's when it went. Because huh. that's when there's a shift in, in types of pottery, like late Minoan 1A to late Minoan right. 1B. But right. again, the, you know, it's the whole problem of, of what do you date based on what, or what comes first. And that date, 1450, was coming out of pottery chronology. It wasn't coming out of really scientific stuff like radiocarbon dating. You know, Now, admittedly, there are problems with radiocarbon dating. You've got to do wiggle matching and... The amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere has not always been constant, et cetera, et cetera. But everything is pointing more and more, at least in my opinion, to the fact that that radiocarbon is accurate and a 1628 date makes more sense than 1450. But still, that means that when I'm giving lectures, I get responses from two different groups of people, which is, well, what about Santorini? Why didn't that impact the end of the late Bronze Age? Or you're wrong, it did impact it. I can't believe you're dismissing it. Uh, and the other group that are saying, no, 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 it, the eruption is definitely linked to the exodus. It makes sense. And then I say, well, that's if the exodus happened. And at that point, they stop listening. So, <laughs> <clears throat> so I've got um, that 1177, I've been giving it as a series of lectures around the country and a couple of them have been taped and are up on YouTube and, and, yes. and they can watch it. Um, there is one that I, that was recorded about a year ago in October, 2016 by the national capital area skeptics. And they put that up and it's been seen almost a million times, which just blows my mind. I didn't know that many people were interested, but I think it's, resonating because people are wondering if we've got the same sorts of things going on now and if, you know, 2017 is going to be another 1177. Mm. But in that lecture, at one point I said, if the exodus happened, it would have taken place at about this time. And in the comments underneath the video, a number of people have read the minute he said, if the exodus happened and called it into doubt, I turned it off. I'm like, well, that, that's not really open-minded of you, is it? And the other group um, is, is saying, um, wait, the, you're just dismissing the eruption. Uh, do you really, how can you do that? And I'm like, read the book. <laughs> read the book. Don't just listen to the video. If but, anyone ever if anyone ever stepped off a digital mountain with a stone tablet with commandments upon it for the internet, I'm pretty sure never read the comments <laughs> would, would, would probably be somewhere on the list. Yes, I, I, I just got to say so that that and rule 34. Yeah. But, and the interesting thing there, too, is that they will tell you after that, I, I turned it off. But then they will continue criticizing you for all the stuff that you said after that. Oh, yeah, that, that's always a, that's always that. a fun one. That's the, yeah, the, right. the, the, the never ending, the never ending. Uh, uh, I, I forget the word, but where you where you you leave, but you really don't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also think it's interesting that they get all mad because you question if the exodus actually happened and then fail to notice that it was put up by the skeptics group. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, that should be your first hint that maybe Perhaps, they're not going yeah. to be like that, true yes, to the biblical stories there. there yes. But yeah. you know, it, there's, a, there's a broader issue here, and that is the um, 
taking uh, what what is presented as a miraculous event or series of events by a religious tome and trying to explain it as an actual physical uh, that there's a physical cause for it. So in other words, these things that are presented as miracles in the Bible, the ten plagues, have in this interpretation an actual physical um, cause. So therefore. It's not a miracle. Um, when I was a kid growing up, I used to go to the Hayden Planetarium in New York, and every December they would have the, uh, the it was the it was the Christmas show, and in that one, the Star of Bethlehem was always presented as well. Maybe it was a comet, or maybe it was a meteor. Right. So they're, they're trying to give a, 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 an explanation yeah. that fits within the realm of modern science, even though in the in the in the text it's presented as miraculous. I, mean, I can right. see if somebody is ideologically invested in this, it's enough to get angry if they were coming from a very literalist perspective, like, oh, there's a pillar of fire, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, they're getting very angry about an eruption. Right. That's, yes. that's, I, I didn't know there were seismological fundamentalists, but apparently there are. <laughs> so. Well, and I don't remember there being a, an eruption described in the Bible, so... Well, the only way you can get to that is the pillar of fire. That's what I was wondering, yeah. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Um, did, did it erupt frogs? Did it throw frogs out? <laughs> yeah. I was wondering about that one, I have to say. But well, there, there are documentaries out there that will explain it that way. So, yeah. Um, yeah. The thing is, you know, uh, when I teach this and what I said in, in, uh, uh, in that video... I don't say the Exodus did not happen, and I don't say that in for me the Exodus. I don't say it didn't happen. I said we don't have any proof for it yet. Right, and it's that m m. Yeah, it's they don't like that. They want a definitive answer. Stupid, stupid tentative science. Right. Okay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna go to break real quick, and when we come back, uh, we will jump back on this topic this network is supported by our listeners you can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up as a supporting member you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members only slack team for professional members we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year once again go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hey everyone, and we are back and we are still speaking with Eric Klein and we are still doing uh, biblical archaeology here. Um, a actual biblical archaeology, though, I'd like to clarify that there, there are two branches, kind of, of biblical archaeology. There's like actual biblical archaeology and then there's like Biblical archaeology in the guise of trying to prove every little thing about the Bible correct, regardless of what, however it might be. Um, also known as the fringe, which is what we deal with here. So keeping that in mind, uh, Eric, you just recently said you finished grading a bunch of papers on which you asked this question. But what is the connection between Akhenaten and Moses? <laughs> The connection between Akhenaten and Moses is very much like the connection between real biblical archaeology and what you just call fringe archaeology. 
So, so why don't we start with who is when we say Akhenaten? He's probably one of the more famous of the Egyptian pharaohs, but why? Like, who are we talking about here? Right. Okay. So Akhenaten is a pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, the New Kingdom in Egypt. Uh, he is probably best known for having perhaps invented monotheism. When he comes to the throne, which is middle of the 14th century BC, so about 1350, um, he basically outlaws the worship of all the other gods and goddesses in Egypt, you know, of which there were hundreds. And he says that um, only one god can now be worshipped, and that is the god Aten, A-T-O-N or A-T-E-N. Uh, and Aten, by the way, is the outer disk of the sun. The sun itself is Ra, but the outer disk, the outer ring, is Aten. Yeah, and Ra had been associated with pharaohs for like millennia, right? Or for leaders and kings. Yes, yes, as had Amun and Hathor and everybody else. Right. So what Akhenaten does is he outlaws all the other gods and goddesses. He closes down their temples. He takes their treasuries and basically fires all the priests. Sounds very. It sounds very Henry VIII. Yes. Yes. Well, and and that leads us to wonder if this was strictly religious. Right. That's the question I was going to ask. Is that was it was it some religious revelation uh, for, for Akhenaten, or was it a political way of getting rid of all of this, all these priests who were sucking up so much of the wealth of Egypt? Yeah. Well, I think. I personally think it was a brilliant move and that it was a political move completely. He may well have believed, but um, bear in mind as Pharaoh, he is already commander-in-chief of the armies. He's already the head of the government. So by getting rid of all the other gods and goddesses and making only Aten um, the one god, at the same time, he made himself the head priest. That is, you and I could not worship Aten directly. We had to pray to Akhenaten, and then he prayed to Aten on our behalf. It, well, it was very nice of him. Yeah, it's kind of like if we prayed to the Pope, and the Pope then prayed to God on our behalf. It's kind of like that, which for me, therefore, that's not monotheism. That's, <laughs> that, that's yeah, not right. monotheism. And, and, and excuse my ignorance if this is inaccurate, but, but earlier on, much earlier on in Egypt, like we're talking about the Old Kingdom, there was sort of a relationship between the king and the gods to some degree, but by the Middle Kingdom, there was a, I don't want to say it was democratized, but this idea of super restricted access to the supernatural was not quite the case. Is that is that about right? Yeah, and basically when he's making this power grab, I think that's exactly what it is, is a power grab, not a real religion grab. So, because that means he's now head of, of everything basically, religion, government, and military. And he also, at the same time, when he closed the temples down and took the treasuries, he became wealthy beyond belief. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it was an amazing power move, and the religion was almost secondary. But, you know, we can argue that till the cows go home. It's an right. interesting way to discuss it. And then is what he does actually monotheism or is another type of ism. Right. And then how do you compare it to Moses, for example? Um, well, I, I, the, before, I, before we get to that, I think the thing that's important to mention is that scholars can argue about whether it is or whether it's not, but there's a long tradition going back to the late 19th century when 
Amarna. So this is often called the Amarna period also because the this is a more modern name for where Akhenaten built Akhet Aten, his capital, which after he died was pretty much abandoned to the waste. And people are like, screw this. We're going back to the way it was. When this starts to get dug up by archaeologists about 130 years ago, um, there's this huge fascination with this place. And very early, like lots of intellectuals, including people like Sigmund Freud, became fascinated with the idea that maybe this is the beginning of monotheism, which was seen as like a huge breakthrough in civilization at that time. Uh, right. not, not, not in the Bronze Age, but like in the late 19th, early 20th century, it was seen that way. And so there's a lot of kind of popular interest, I think, that generates from that. Not that yeah. I say Victorian every episode. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, when Amarna was discovered, uh, it, it was a real sensation. In fact, um, Amarna is best known, I would say, not just as the capital city of, of Akhenaten, um, which is in a new area, by the way. It's like halfway between Cairo and Luxor. It's a brand new capital that he founded. Right. It's in the middle but, of nowhere, in essence. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, and in fact, if you go there now, there's, there's not much to see because it was pretty much torn apart after his death um, as a reaction to what he tried to do. But in 1887, a peasant woman, this is how the story goes, peasant woman digging for fertilizer hit upon an archive of clay tablets, which are now called the Amarna Archive. Ah, yes, the Amarna Letters. Right, the Amarna Letters, and they turn out to be um, a couple of hundred clay tablets that are the royal archive of Akhenaten and his father, Amenhotep III, who rules right after 1400 B.C., and this is the correspondence between them and the other great powers of that day, king of the Hittites, king of Babylon, king of Assyria, king of Cyprus, and then a bunch of vassal kings in Canaan, which is today Israel. Right, Syria. right. Right, so these give us insights, and this is part of what I talked about in 1177, uh, because they show that there is a network. It is a, literally a small world, as people like my wife who does social network analysis call it, where people are just a couple of jumps away from everybody else. Think, uh, you know, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Um, same type of thing there where everyone knew each other. And it's a very interconnected world. So Akhenaten is in contact with quite a few of the other kings, let alone his whole religious revolution, it's the social and diplomatic implications of that period that have us interested either as as well or um, more so. But uh, uh, in, can I ask yeah. these tablets? They're authentic. Oh yeah. Oh totally. Okay. Yes, and yes. they're in, and they're in various languages and writing systems, correct? No, they're only in one. They're oh well, really? Okay, they're in two, but. There is one letter that's written in either Hittite or Hurrian. Okay. Uh, all the rest are in Akkadian, which is the lingua franca. Oh, wow. Okay. The diplomatic world. So, so these are all these are all cuneiform, the script, but they're in the Akkadian language. Exactly. Exactly. So everyone who is anyone is doing their native language and Akkadian. So the Egyptians are doing it, you know, hieroglyphics and Akkadian. Hittites are doing Hittite and Akkadian. And so ah, it's, it's okay. like Ben Franklin and French at that time. Right, right. right. So, but what's interesting, too, is it's obvious that the king couldn't read or write them because each tablet starts out with, 
thus, uh, no, it says, say to King so-and-so, thus says King so-and-so. So you know, <laughs> the, you know the scribe is reading it out loud. Right. Right. So it's, uh, we know a lot about that period. It's a fascinating period. It's actually why I would love to live at that time and go back and meet these guys, um, especially Amenhotep III, Akhenaten's father, who seems to be um, sending embassies and maybe trading as far away as mainland Greece and Crete with the right. Mycenaeans and the Minoans. Right. So that's the context that all this is taking place in. And for um, Akhenaten to suddenly come up with a religious revolution, which is not seen or reflected in any of the letters or anything else like that, that again implies to me that this is really, I think, him consolidating his power and the religion is kind of secondary. But again, that's a fun thing for the scholars to argue. But that then means how does Moses work into this? Because, well, it depends, again, coming back to the date of the Exodus and the date of Moses. If you date the Exodus, according to the Bible, in 1450 BC, then Moses is 100 years before Akhenaten. But if you date the Exodus according to when the archaeology seems to imply it should have taken place, then Moses is 100 years after Akhenaten. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's all it's all antiquity. It's flat. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's all yeah, exactly. It's just a flat, well, so one of the things that form. I do find intriguing is, let's say for argument's sake that what Akhenaten invents is almost monotheism, and that Moses lives a hundred years later. It's not impossible that what Moses then starts doing could have come out of what the Egyptians were beginning to do. But again, now you're building castles in the air and putting carts in the sand and all that. It's a lot of what if, what if, what if. And, and, and putting a lot of emphasis on, on a monotheism that only becomes, I think, really culturally important a lot later. Yes. Uh, to people in terms of interpretation. Before we move on, I have a question. This is in total. This is a totally selfish question. You mentioned um, Amenhotep III, and by the way, Amenhotep IV is the guy who becomes Akhenaten. And for our listeners, his son—you may have heard of him—starts life as Tutankhamen. At least I think it's. I guess super complicated. I understand. Mm -hmm. But the following king, or I know that gets complicated, but uh, turns out he then changed his name back to Tutankhamun. He's, he's King Tut, so that's King right Tut. after. Yeah, um, you mentioned the ties to to the Greeks and to um, to Knossos. I had heard the idea that there appeared to be some sort of relationship to the sort of the alleged thalassocracy, the sort of a rule by by navy, a rule by sea of Knossos and Egypt at this time. Is is that at least? plausible or is that what people think and if so what is the evidence for or against that out of curiosity so you're asking about the evidence for a minoan thalassocracy that is that the minoans from greek control well and and, and relation and a relationship to egypt like i've heard the idea that they sort of were kind of interdependent on each other well i wouldn't say they were interdependent but they were certainly trading and they were in communication that is for sure the, there are Egyptian texts of that time that mention the Keftiu, which is what right. the Egyptians called Crete. There is one text that talks about Keftiu boats. But the question is, what is a Keftiu boat? Is it a boat from Keftiu, that is from Crete, and it's a Minoan boat? Or is it an Egyptian boat that is designed and built so that it can get to Keftiu? Right. Or is it just a type of boat, like a you know a, a style boat? Yeah. Right. 
So we do have those mansions. We also do have quite a bit of um, um, inscriptions and pictorial evidence in Egypt for the mountains. They're painted, for example, on the walls of the tombs of some of the nobles mm-hmm. um, and various other things. So we, we definitely know that Minoans and Mycenaeans are in contact with Egypt during the time of not only Amenhotep III and Akhenaten and King Tut, but even earlier, the time of Hatshepsut and her stepson Tutmosis III, which takes us back to about 1500 BC. Mm. So they're in contact for a couple of centuries. Okay, uh, cool. And, you know, it's it's impossible for one of our episodes to go very long without a shout out to the lost continent of Atlantis. But certainly the, right. the folks who think that Atlantis was Minoan Crete um, and that the eruption of Santorini destroyed Minoan Crete and therefore destroyed Atlantis – they argue that that's why the Greeks got this information from Egypt, from Egyptian priests, who obviously would have been aware that the Minoans had disappeared. Suddenly they're not trading. Suddenly they're not appearing. Uh, uh, and they're not contacting them. And so they tell the story of the destruction of this great civilization. And somehow it gets passed down to Solon and get pa- gets passed down ultimately to Critias. And then Plato writes about it. Um, and so folks will argue, oh, yeah, this makes total sense that if Minoan Crete was wiped out by the eruption of Thera, the Egyptian priests would have known about it. And that's why Plato traces that information back to some anonymous Egyptian priests. Right. Well, and I'm happy to have you bring up Atlantis for uh, however many shows in a row you've done that. <laughs> it's all right. It's a, it, we're well, it, it, to do it. it comes up occasionally, and then they, they did one dedicated one. It's, it's not all the time. It's just a lot of the time. But I will, yeah, actually, we touch on it a lot. I, I will play devil's advocate here and actually say that I do think the eruption of Santorini is the kernel of truth at the basis of the legend of Atlantis. But I'll tweak what you just said a little bit. Yes, it may have been that Santorini erupted and then the Minoans stopped coming, but it was only for a while because, and again, I get this all the time. I just got an email yesterday from a guy saying, the eruption of Santorini wiped out Crete, and nobody lived there ever again. And I'm like, <laughs> no, no one's there no, now. That's not right. That's not true. No one lives. There are no people on the island of. It's Crete. a wasteland. But, but, ne- waste. but never minding that. I mean, even right. if you even if you put it in 1450, which we're not, but even if you did, that's also s- still not accurate. Right, but okay, but so let's say that Santorini blows up in 1628, which is right. what I would agree with. Yeah, um, the Minoans are already trading with Egypt and the Near East by that point. Right, and and if there's a tsunami and ashfall and life is interrupted on Crete for a while, yes, they could have stopped coming, and maybe that's where you get this whole story that Solon hears when he gets there. So it's not completely out of the ball game, and I do tend to think, as I tell my students, that I don't think you usually make up all your myths and legends just out of complete fabrication. I usually think there's a, a kernel of truth. So I would argue, for instance, that probably Santorini is your best candidate if Atlantis happened. Um, the story of Theseus and the Minotaur—it's the ruins of Knossos that right. makes most right. sense. Even the story of the Trojan War, we've got evidence now, according to the Hittites, we have written evidence that no fewer than four wars took place at Troy during the time span that it could have happened. So 
Um, I actually kind of like Santorini being Atlantis, but I think you've got to temper it with an awful lot of salt and straw and whatever else you want to put in with it. Right, right. <laughs> well, that's what the, the um, remember L. Sprague de Camp, who was a wonderful science fiction writer, but also a science writer, yeah. uh, wrote a book on lost continents. And his argument is that, well, you, you know, you get to a point where there are so many details that you have to change to make it fit that you know you certainly no longer have Plato's story of Atlantis. Yeah. But that, I mean it's absolutely true that that you can say that about most fiction that somewhere along the line the writers of fiction base what they're writing on their own experiences the things that they've read and heard. And I've I've heard people argue that there are episodes of Star Wars that are actually somehow related to the the presidency of George Bush and the invasion of Iraq. Oh and and you know he, um um Lucas says well no not really but but he, but he Those did have some Vietnam in mind when he was making it. Okay, and yeah. so you, so yeah, I, I think that that we're we're saying the same thing that yeah, yeah all these things are inspired by something, right? And maybe nobody's making anything about a whole cloth, um, and that's yeah, sure. Yeah, Absolutely. but the only reason, but the only reason anybody cares about a concept of Atlantis after Plato, I mean, Plato's doing whatever he's doing with it. Right. But when we're talking the, the 18th, 19th, and especially the 20th and 21st centuries, it's a golden age that gives the world civilization. But is blah right. blah 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 blah. Uh, last time I checked, not so much with the Canossos or the Santorini. Nice places, sure, but not what they're looking for. Right, and it also all comes to an end. Right, this all um, factors into these amazing civilizations that are now gone and we can't find traces of them, which various people tend to uh, keep um, proposing for, uh, in various areas of the world. So again, Atlantis is one of those super technological that's now gone and oh, woe is us. But you're right, if you want to use Plato, you have to like chop a zero off the number. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's what, what's a factor of ten amongst friends? Now I've got a question. So Eric, we've got Akhenaten takes over. How do the, the these these priests of these other gods are extraordinarily wealthy and powerful when this all happens? How do they react? And and does Akhenaten die a natural death? <laughs> Very good question. Very good question. And my students were just answering that on the midterm I was grading today. Uh -huh. um, yes, he does seem to die a natural death, as far as we can tell. But the minute he dies, his memory begins to be erased. They go back and they tear down uh, his capital city in Amarna, Akhetaten, chisel his name out of many of the inscriptions. Yep. And he was lost for a very long time. Uh, I mean, now we know about him, but he was lost right. for a very long time. Um, but that's where it gets interesting because uh, to come back to something you said just a moment ago, Akhenaten's dad, yes, is Amenhotep III, but his son appears to be King Tut. And if you will recall, King Tut has an incredibly wealthy tomb that Howard Carter found in 1922. One of the questions that we ask is, since King Tut only ruled for about 10 years, he came to the throne as about an eight-year-old. He's dead by 18, <coughs> every reason. Where's all that money come from? Well, where does it all come yeah. from? And if you compare it to a guy like Ramses II, who rules for about 60 years and who may be the pharaoh of the Exodus, what would his tomb have been right. of if we had found it unlooted? And of course, we, we, we have his location, right? Like, it's, is it KV, which... 
I forget which one it is. Ninety five. It's in the Valley of the Kings, and we've yeah. got it, but it was found looted. So, right. so that's the question. Wow, if a little boy king is this much, then right, right. Well, an alternate suggestion, which I kind of like, is that King Tut's is an anomaly, uh, and it has nothing to do with the length of time that he ruled, but the fact that he changed his name back, as you said, to Tutankhamun, and he allowed the priests to come back. He gave them back their temples. He gave them back their treasuries. He allowed them to come back into power, and some of us wonder if his tomb is crammed full of goodies because the grateful priests gave him stuff to go into the afterlife because he had restored them to power. So Akhenaten's reforms did not last more than, you know, a decade or so after his death. But then then that begs the question of how much really was King Tut responsible for all of that being an eight, nine, and ten-year-old and weren't right. were there other other members of that entourage, other members of the palace, who were more directly responsible? Well, there may well have been, including his mother. If his mother right. is if his mother is Nefertiti, which most people suspect, it's been suggested actually that she ruled for a while as the pharaoh known as Smenkere. Big debate I've, about that. But. And I've also heard I've also heard the idea that she changed her name to Nefer Nefer Watten and and possibly ruled under that name or something. Well, she does change her name, at least uh, like King Tut. She's, you know, Nefru, Nefru, Aten at the beginning, just like Akhenaten, and then she okay. changes her name. So there's a lot going on. And then, of course, that's tied into the newest uh, possible discoveries of whether there are extra rooms in King Tut's tomb we didn't know about, and could Nefertiti be buried in there? Right. That's where Nicholas Reeves has suggested that. We had a couple of um, remote sensing scans that suggested maybe he was correct, and then one most recently that said he wasn't correct, and now I understand there's going to be another um, exploration by, I think, really team, yeah, trying to do one more remote sensing and see. But, you know, if there are extra rooms in King Tut's tomb, and if Nefertiti is in there, that will answer an awful lot of our questions about <laughs> all of this because she may well have been that power behind the throne. Right. Everything come back or whatever. Nefertiti is one of the most interesting people in Egyptian history, uh, and uh, we could talk about that for an entire show, but we won't. No. Uh, let's go to break real quick, and when we come back, um, let's talk about I wanted to hit on this because you and I spoke about this a little earlier. I want to hit on what is our, what what professional archaeologists should be doing to communicate these things with the public at the same time that they're publishing uh, professional manuscripts, obviously, because it's a publisher die world out there. Hey, podcast fans, check out the ARC 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365. That's A-R-C-H 365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long, and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365 today. Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show.
And we are back, and we are still speaking with Eric Klein. And Eric, you wanted to uh, you wanted to give us a good definition of what biblical archaeology is to go along with my kind of ham-handed one earlier. <laughs> yeah, well, what it is and what it isn't. So I wrote a couple of years ago one of these little very short introductions that Oxford puts out. Yes, is- tiny, tiny little books, excellent series. Yes. Uh, and, you know, those are the hardest books to write because you are limited to 35,000 words and not Oh, one. my God. That's so small. <laughs> that's one tab. That's one email from Jeb, by the way. Kind of, sort of. <laughs> well, sometimes. Right. But they're right. always good emails. Always good emails. So this is so these are tough to write, but they're fun. So I wrote one on the Trojan War, but I've also written one on biblical archaeology, which came out, oh, I don't know, about 2009, something like that. Um and in it, on the very first page, I describe that biblical archaeology uh, is a subset of what we call Syro-Palestinian archaeology. That is the archaeology we do in what is today Israel and Jordan and Lebanon and Syria. So what it's doing is shedding light on uh, the stories and the people and the descriptions that are in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, basically from time of the Abraham and the Patriarchs, second millennium BC, right through the Roman period in the early first millennium. And what we're doing, we're not trying to prove or disprove the Bible, which is a shock to most people. We're trying to investigate what the people in biblical times wore, what they ate, what they believed, what they thought, what they feared. Um, We're trying to do archaeology. It just happens to be in that area. Right, just like anywhere else. Yeah. So when we're doing biblical archaeology, we're doing archaeology as if it were anywhere else in the world. It just happens we're in the region that many people call the Holy Land. So my first day in my intro to archaeology class, I define classical archaeology, you know, Greece and Rome, and I define underwater archaeology, which by definition is underwater, mm-hmm. and biblical archaeology, which is if you're working in Israel, Lebanon, Canaan, uh, you know, Jordan and Syria the land where the people were living back then. So we're not out, again, we're not out to prove or disprove the Bible. So the mere fact that we're digging in the areas that um, are described by the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament kind of makes our work of interest to a greater number of people out there in the world than would be interested in archaeology elsewhere. Um, And as a result, in a way, biblical archaeologists get asked more questions by more people about what they do, I think, than, say, somebody working in North America, for example. You know, yeah, um, I, As much as I say don't read the comments, when I do watch you know, a video like the ones you do or on similar topics, there are a hell of a lot more comments, and most of them seem to be from people who have a, a religious interest. Well, yeah. they have an inve- – different from so many other things that we discuss, there's a real serious religious investment in a particular version of the story, and they sure as hell aren't going to be happy with you saying, well, there's no evidence for that, or there's evidence that contradicts that. Right. So this is then where the question comes in of how much should professional archaeologists get out there and interact, present their results or answer questions from the general public. And a lot of archaeologists 
do not do that. They don't want to interact. Uh, they say, no, no, somebody else can do it. I personally think that archaeologists owe it to the public. In fact, it's part of the code of ethics for a number of anthropological and archaeological associations that we are supposed to bring our findings to the public. And when I was younger, especially, my rationale was if somebody asked me to be in a documentary, I would usually say yes, because I would say, if I don't do it, then who will? And at least I would try and present what we know and what we don't know. Um, what I found over the years, though, and especially like you say, in reading the comments and such, um, <laughs> there are people out there that um, watch these, and if you say something that is um, counter to what they wanted to hear, for example, they will send emails, they will send letters. Um, and then, then the question is, do you respond? Do you keep the, the interaction going? So quite recently, there's been a number of episodes where classical archaeologists have been um, you know, verbally, textually attacked where you would never expect it. They were talking about whether statues in antiquity were you know, beautiful white like they look like today or whether they were painted. Well, we happen to know they were painted, for sure. You can see the remnants of the paint. So were the buildings, the Parthenon, uh, the stuff in Egypt. They're all painted. They were probably garishly hideous, in fact. So, and and I, I do. Do we want to talk about? I mean, what was what was the name of the scholar that that was working on that? Uh, well, Sarah Bond was the one that published yes. one of those articles, right? And got death threats for yes. it. Yes. So, and and in a large part, she was also talking about how how their continued display without contextualization, without saying everything you just said, there has been a construction of 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 whiteness as, as beauty. This ties into centuries of colonialism, et cetera. And and I think my take on this is it's one thing to tell all these things. You have people that might disagree with what you're saying, but I also think simply, because we do have some credibility, we do have some social status as scientists and as scholars, because there's at least some status and credibility that can be ta that, that can be used there, it can also be hijacked. And it, it almost seems mm -hmm. like a lot of these events are like, oh, you're saying a thing? Well, I'm now going to come and take your thing as like a partisan political act. And, and, and watching yeah. the Sarah Bond case, it seemed like a bunch of guys in the alt-right you know, ventured out of their Pepe the Frog, you know, Reddit, 4chan layers and decided to try to take a platform. Right. And this is a shame because people like Sarah Bond and Mary Beard and Candida Moss and all these people who are doing outreach um, are doing a wonderful job. They're making these questions, topics, discussions accessible, um, very accessible, publishing in Forbes magazine, for example, publishing in the Daily Beast. Uh, these are things that, that the general public are reading, and they're doing a wonderful service. So to then be attacked for that, for something that the scholarly world is going, wait, we know this. This isn't an argument. This is really bizarre. But well, luckily Twitter is not used to attack anyone. Well, <laughs> right. not, physically, not physically, but... I, that was that was sarcasm, by the way, in case ah, anybody was. Ah, gotcha. I think another aspect that's being missed in this uh, conversation, and I, I will be the one to bring it up, we're talking about uh, 
female scientists who are speaking out in very public forums, going after images that are being used for basically hypermasculinity. So, I mean, there's a lot of layers to this, but I think part of the other problem is, is there just aren't enough people speaking out about what actual science looks like and what actual archaeology looks like in a way that people are used to seeing. Well, and I think that that's really important. You say there's not a lot. I think at one point there was more, you know, so, so yes. Eric is writing three, you know, three stones make a wall, which by the way, what is the origin of that line? Because that's a line I have heard for years that you've uh -huh. used. What is well, the, where does that come from? Well, it's an archaeological saying. It's an right. axiom. Um, the full thing, which is at the beginning of the book, is one stone uh, is a stone. One, two stones is a feature. This is when you're finding stuff. Uh, three stones is a wall, because if you've got things in a row, it, it, it probably is going to be a wall. But it then goes on. That's where we get tongue-in-cheek. Four stones is a building. Five stones <laughs> is a palace. And then, of course, we've had to add in six stones as a palace built by aliens. Right. Very nice. <laughs> ah, well, that explains right. that. This, this reminds me of the old, the old Ian Fleming, uh, three times his enemy action. But, um, but no, you, you've, you've written on the greatest hits of archaeology and all of this. You've written on for a popular audience, and you've gone on video popular to talk about the end of the Bronze Age and the sort of implications for what can go wrong in a very interconnected world. And you've written on, on, you know, examining ideas in the Bible and so forth. This seems to be a thing that we at one time used to be more comfortable with. The name I was grappling with earlier finally came to mind, Sir Leonard Woolley. He uh -huh. wrote numerous books for the popular audience, went on radio. And Mortimer Wheeler uh, was, in addition to his facial hair, you know, voted like a top like celebrity in the UK because of his TV shows. And there were others like this. Yeah. Like and Jim, then yeah, yeah, like who? Henry Breasted. Breasted who founded the Orient right. in Chicago. Yes, they yeah. all did. Yes. Yeah. And then I'm not saying around the time that we had to start publishing or perishing, our audience changed. But it's interesting. It's interesting you bring that up because this has actually been discussed um, recently. Um, publish and perish may have done that. I think it absolutely did do that. Yeah, because if you're writing for a popular audience, does that it's count? Worth, for it's worth nothing. It's worth nothing for tenure. Right, blogging does not count. Anything yeah. like that. Nope. Turn, turn, turns out if you don't have a tenure track, you can do whatever you want. Um, but uh, that's, yeah. that's oh, actually, and I actually said that in this conversation we had on Facebook the other day for the first uh, gosh the first 10 years of my career I was an adjunct and the next 6 years I was a contract faculty I was not tenure track yes that um, sounds very very familiar continue yes I didn't it did not matter if I published period and if I did publish it didn't matter what I published on I was hired to teach and what I had to do was teach well so I was able to publish whatever I wanted, whatever interested me. And then when I was changed to tenure track, they looked back at, at everything I'd done and said, oh, yeah, okay, you're good. That, you're that, good. That's nice and all, but now it's serious time. <laughs> so, 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 Jeff, not being in tenure track, tenure track is liberating. Is that correct? I think I've said that actually on the show. <laughs> and I think it's actually – in all seriousness, I think there's a legitimate, a legitimate point there. Right. Um, I, something I have said, and I'd be very curious to hear your reaction to this, Eric, is – I argue that around the same time 
that the publish and perish starts to emerge. And it really, there's, you can point at various points, but archaeology, for example, now I'm looking at it from a more American perspective and you could, you could argue this elsewhere, but I, I think it's not entirely wrong. Say in the 1960s, there starts to be the, we are doing explicit theory for ourselves. Very, very important. We're doing explicit method for ourselves. We're reexamining what we're doing. Very, very important. But that's at the exact same time that what my co-hosts call the fringe and what I call <clears throat> the new mainstream um, starts to really get its really get its shit together. And I not so jokingly say the most important archaeologist of the 1960s is not Lewis Binford. The most important archaeologist from a influence perspective, even though I wouldn't call him an archaeologist per se, is Eric Von Daniken. And the fact that those two emerge around the same time when you have this university professionalization of the field, yeah, mm -hmm. I don't think that's an accident. Yeah, well, we've talked about this a bunch, that, that when we don't speak out, there's a vacuum, and there are a lot of folks yes. out there interested in archaeology, and they will yes. listen to whoever will speak to them. And if we don't, you know, Someone else will. Somebody, yeah, absolutely. Nature, Na abhors na a vacuum. nature, nature, and the media abhor a vacuum. Here also, Maya art and iconography abhors a vacuum, but that's a very different issue. <laughs> well, I would I would agree with you to a, a large extent. In fact, I talk about Von Donnegan in the Three Stones Make a Wall. When I'm, I, I did look for that in the index. I did see that. Yeah, because uh, when I'm talking about the Nazca line, so I I would agree with you. The one thing I would say in term in terms of writing, yes, being an adjunct is liberating. Uh, in all other ways, being an adjunct is certainly not liberating. Oh and, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no disagreements. No disagreements. Yeah. Um, I'm not an adjunct now, but no disagreements. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. I actually, you know, I think that um, being an adjunct taught me how to teach when yeah. I learned it because if you can't do it, you, you shouldn't do it. So yeah. that was interesting. But yeah, so your point about Binford and Von Donneken, which would both be, you know, yeah, 1960s new archaeology, yeah. it is, it's an interesting point. And it may be that as archaeology went away from sustaining the popular audience's interest. Others moved in, like you said, to, into the vacuum and took over. Um, and um, that was something I published a, an op-ed of the Boston Globe back in 2007. I remember that piece. Yeah, they entitled it Raiders of the Faux Ark. Yes, yes, yes. yes. It, it was, um, there was a wonderful editor on the Boston Globe, which made the piece much better than the original thing that I had submitted. Um, and he said this was similar. Uh, us ignoring what, what you call what we call the fringe is similar to uh, evolutionists uh, ignoring uh, intelligent design. Yeah, and, and before they knew it, it was being taught in the schools right. alongside their stuff. Yeah. Yep. No, I mean the 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 intelligent the 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 rise of intelligent design after the, the Louisiana Supreme Court or the federal Supreme Court decision on Louisiana. Yeah, biologists, I'm not saying no biologists took it seriously, but a lot didn't seem to take it seriously until uh, Kansas in 99 and, and then Dover. And all of a sudden, there started to be this serious, it didn't make creationism go away, but it did make that sort of hybrid intelligent design go away, and to a large degree. Uh, and, and, and I think that that's a lesson to be learned. Absolutely. Right. The problem, though, is, you know, in order to maintain our standing with with our colleagues in the archaeological community, you can't just write for the popular audience. No. 
you had, and my rule of thumb was always for every one thing I put out that was popular, quote unquote, I would put out two things that were, you know, for my colleagues. I haven't always adhered to that, but that's that's, he- that's healthy. I like that. I, yeah. And, you know, since I'm, I'm digging at Kabri, a Canaanite site in Israel, and we pop a couple of articles out every couple of years on that, um, it, it maintains kind of the street cred with the colleagues. At the same time, is it still, you can say, yes, I'm an archaeologist, and I'm like allowed to write these books. But right. it's a fine line, and especially if you're a younger scholar, it could be, it's still dangerous. Um, and the old adage that, you know, wait till you got tenure to, to do that kind of stuff, it probably still does hold true. Right, though that also that also presupposes an ecosystem where you're ever going to get it. <laughs> yes. And true. it's definitely the case that if you are writing for a popular audience, there's a lot more, you are you are afforded a lot more uh, respect and and a credibility if you can say i am not ju- i am not a science writer i am an archaeologist who actually does archaeology and that is what informs my popular writing right and you know yes. april b saw put forward the idea that we should be science communicators and that we on top of doing our thing that we're hired to do uh that we should be trying to also communicate. And I think that takes us away from the whole, oh, I'm just goofing around with the blog kind of thing, or I just tweet in my spare time. You might just be doing those two little things, but you're communicating the science that you do with a lay public, especially if you have a fairly popular blog or a fairly popular Twitter. You should be using that to your advantage. And you can still be you. You can still, I mean, because on Twitter, I can still talk to people and I can still interact with them and I can still read all of Ken's horrible puns. But at the same time, I can also share links that people find interesting that people want to go and read articles about. And I notice that when I share those, those people get a a little bit of a, a jump in the traffic that goes there. And I think that's something that we should be doing as people, as archaeologists who have that kind of a reach, because it only helps us. That doesn't hurt us. It helps well, us. Uh, it helps everybody. It does help everybody because um, I'm fairly active on social media, more on Facebook than on Twitter. But I have to say that's how I learned about the breaking archaeology news is friends and colleagues that post things that I wouldn't normally see. Yeah. And so I, I'm much more up to speed than I ever was before um, being active on social media. So it's not just helping the general public, it's helping the fellow scholars. Uh, mm-hmm. But I also, going back to your your, your idea about, um, you know, this is what I do and this is why I do it, that actually, somebody asked me, what's the difference between my Three Stones book and Saram's God's Grace and Scholars? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, apart from the fact that mine's 50 years later and I have a whole mess of new stuff he didn't have, mine is also written from the viewpoint of a field archaeologist, and I was actually afraid that I had put myself in too much, but I put myself in as examples, both of what to do and what not to do, and I think that's part of the appeal of the book to the general public of, oh, this is being written not by a journalist telling the stories, but by a guy who's been in the field to whom this has actually happened and can say, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's that, it's that first person experience that people want to know about. Right. Oh, yeah. And I mean, in the class, in the classroom, good science writers stories are always useful. 
Right. Exactly. And I mean, a good science writer can definitely tell a good story, but it's never going to be as good as a firsthand experience. Right. right. You got, of course, you always get the students on the evaluations. He talks about himself an awful lot. I'm like, <laughs> I, I do. I'm using myself as an example. And so that is what I put in the book. And so Three Stones is actually fairly autobiographical in terms of my digging history since my first dig in 1980 when I thought I found a petrified monkey's paw. I didn't. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but, exactly. That was we'll an Alfred Hitchcock show. We, we, we'll, we'll need to get you so back on for the for the uh, for uh, a cursed artifact episode. But anyway. There we um, go. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and I bring it right up to the present because we found the oldest and largest wine cellar at our site at Tel Kabri uh, in Israel just in 2013 and 2015. Now so, that, ladies and gentlemen, is an archaeologist. I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't think anybody who listens to our show is confused about what and that I, and is. I'll say that as somebody who, as part of my dissertation work and after, identified, I think, the first archaeologically known tavern in the Spanish colonial New World. Excellent. I... You know, I feel like we need to get somebody on here who's doing this archaeology of beer or alcohol and just let them rant for a little yeah. while. Because I think that would be a fun show. I think we could make that happen. Well, guys, which is we could probably. Guys, thank you very much for coming on. And Eric, thank you. Thanks for this. This has been a lot of fun. Great and fun, it's Eric. a lot of information Thanks, here. Thanks, Eric. It was wonderful. Yes, uh, absolutely. It's been fun. Thank you all so much. Human evolution makes us smile. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. dinosaurs! This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. See? Are you happy? Do you get it now? Do you get it?